Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Nicholas, thank you for the introduction. Again, my name is Greg Chase. I'm a partner at the law firm of Reed Smith, based in New York, where I lead our transactional shipping team. Uh, we're active in a lot of different types of transactions, from bank finance to private equity investments, NPL transactions, uh, transactions where investors merge their companies, various forms of exiting from previous, trans previous investments. Um, we have a very large topic to talk about today, private equity, M&A, and consolidation. Some of it was touched on in the last panel, and Krista is doing double duty. Um, I think maybe what we should do is focus on private equity first. I'm going to invert the order of the questions I circulated a little bit. But before we do that, maybe let's just run down the panel, and everybody could do a quick introduction of themselves and the company they represent. And my name is Axel Siebmann, uh, representing Bremer Navis. Um, we're a subsidiary of uh, Bremer Shipping Services, PLC, large shipbroking firm, where um, historically we were founded as a restructuring advisory work uh, company, and uh, today we're in the business of next to doing restructuring, advising people to raise capital. Uh, relevant for today's panel is uh, that we've actually indeed worked quite a lot with, with private equity over the last few years as, as one solution to fund structures that uh, urgently require funding that is prepared to take risk and move in quickly. Um, my name is Krista Volpicelli. I lead Citigroup's investment banking practice for the maritime sector. Um, so I spend a good portion of my time on mergers and acquisitions advisory and some of my time on capital markets as well. I was supposed to be in this panel. Nicholas asked me to step on the other one. Um, but what I will say is um, probably four or five years ago, 80% of our time was being spent on capital markets and IPOs. And today uh, it's the reverse in terms of consolidation being a trend in this sector. Yeah, and I'm uh, Pedro Love Carlson. I'm uh, the... Um, I'm head of uh, Cleves Securities, a small investment boutique investment bank with head office in Oslo. We have office in New York, in Singapore, uh, small office in Mumbai. Um, and uh, most of our activities are uh, M&A advisory, uh, project finance, and uh, we're also doing a bit of bond debt finance. Hi, it's, uh, I'm Roberto Rondelli. I'm a partner at Pillarstone. Pillarstone is a private equity fund that invests in uh, distress. So uh, we have been set up uh, in 2015 uh, with Elpo KKR, that is a large uh, US fund. And uh, we have a significant interest in the shipping business, especially in Italy, uh, at the moment. I'm Paolo Almeida, uh, a partner and chief investment officer at Tufton, which is a uh, shipping-focused investment manager. We manage about $1.3 billion in shipping strategies, um, most of which are moderate risk, moderate return for institutional investors in that portfolio. We have about 90 ships in total over primarily four funds, including one that's listed in London. Uh, called Tufton Oceanic Assets, which has the ticker SHIP, S-H-I-P. That was P. Great. Um, well, thank you, everybody. Let's, let's talk about private equity in a general sense and then try to get more specific about what we may see in the market in the coming months. 
Um, you know, private equity is a very broad term, and we have an industry that has huge capital needs even before we start talking about fleet replacement in the coming years. Um, we've had panels today on a variety of financing techniques. I'm not sure that any of them in and of themselves are sufficient to meet the capital needs of the industry at, at this point. Um, you know, in our practice, we've seen a range of types, different types of investments from, let's call them institutional investors. Some of them are very traditional Wall Street type PE funds. Some of them are, you know, new, new funds which are essentially pursuing alternative theses. But what, what is the role of private equity in shipping right now? Um, and, and what can we expect? Maybe I'll start with Paulo. Uh, thanks, Greg. That's a bit of a difficult uh, question to answer, mostly for the reason that you mentioned that, broad, that private equity is a very, very broad term. Um, if we look back at what most people thought about as private equity in shipping 15 years ago or so, so before the financial crisis, there was really only um, uh, Oak Tree and a few others that had backed, and I think Kelso, backed um, growth or distressed companies that eventually became public. And that's really the, the historic um, definition of, of private equity. Um, primarily going around growth, and a lot of it was around capital markets uh, exit strategies. <coughs> that really stopped working um, after um, the financial crisis. Funds, the generalist funds, uh, which some people call sort of Wall, you know, Wall Street funds or big U.S. names, the funds became much, much bigger. Shipping industry did become bigger um, in the 2000s, but didn't really keep up with the ticket sizes that private equity is looking for. And actually, um, shipping doesn't fit the traditional private equity model, um, which has a lot to do with the value that's added by a, what a big private equity firm brings in terms of governance, alignment of interests, um, and operating partners. Um, unless a shipping company um, has a lot of problems, um, there's really, really not so much you can do to add a huge amount of value. Um, you're somewhat limited in financial engineering, you're limited in revenue synergies, you're limited in cost synergies, because it's a commodity, it's a commodity market. So, so what some of the f large funds then did was fund eco-new builds, um, which was a good thesis, um, but any good thesis that is overexploited is likely to turn into a bad thesis because there's too much money chasing too few deals. And then what we've seen most of the past few years is the big U.S. funds, really some of them are more, much more credit funds than private equity funds have been in, uh, investing in bank loan portfolios because that's really the only way that you could put a lot of money to work. However, all along this time, you've had a few specialists, some of us here, some of us that have uh, been on panels earlier today and other people who are around the conference who are, who are specialists uh, in shipping, doing single ship deals, sale leasebacks, um, investing in smaller uh, operating companies in high growth sectors. That's one of the things at Tufton, um, we've been doing at Tufton. But most of what we've been doing over the past few years is bringing institutional investors into a market where there is value, um, both value and 
uh, strong cash flow generation potential if you buy the right assets and you don't put too much leverage on them um, and you charter them out. And they just like owning ships. They've owned hotels in the past. They've owned commercial real estate. They own airplanes. All of those assets became expensive in the past 10 years, just like almost every other asset in the world. So they've rotated some of their assets or dollars into ships, and they want to work with a specialist like Tufton or like some of the other people here. So th that's actually quite interesting. What is so attractive about ships to some of these investors as compared to aircraft or intellectual property or any other asset class you could think of that might have yield? If, if, we, if we set aside the supply-side recovery that, that Krista in the previous panel has already done a very good job of, of describing in terms of IMO 2020 brings slow steaming, slow steaming depresses capacity, so that supports the supply-side recovery. Just in general, we've had, because of we're still coming out of the distress from 2008, 2009, overcapacity, you have assets that trade on attractive prices by some key metrics. The one that we look at is price to depreciated replacement cost, which is analogous to Tobin's Q in, in uh, traditional equities. And if you look at the history, if you have a decently diversified portfolio of average 10-year-old ships, you don't have too much debt on them and you charter them out, you're gonna have 12, 13% cash on cash being produced by that portfolio on average over 10, 20 years. And it's not going much below nine at any one point. It also doesn't go much about above 15 or 16. When people are, when, when highly levered companies are issuing bonds that are yielding four or five percent, and you can get 12 or 13 percent from shipping, where you don't, you have a lot of downside protection from asset values being cheap, you're not going to put 10% of a pension fund's portfolio into that, but if they do half a percent or 1%, that's still a lot of money. Yeah, maybe let me jump in here. I think private equity continues to be an extremely relevant source, despite all rumors that it's uh, fading away. Um, actually, I find that the, last, the largest transactions we've seen over the last 24 months were actually private equity funded, which were the large loan disposal transactions where on some of the larger transactions you had 30, 40 funds basically coming in first round, throwing in an indicative bid, and, and, and there is, a, let's say, a core group of funds that is competing. Um, so the first funding that they provide is they buy loans, and sometimes in one transaction, a couple of hundred million US dollars in, in, on one transaction. And then the second where private equity is also still coming in and, and willing to provide capital is once the transaction has occurred, you have a fair amount of <coughs> people that find that they've just have a new lender. And as a borrower, they are um, eager to find solutions. The, the private equity funds that have bought these loans are, you know, tough people, but they are also constructive about finding a solution and they find it regulatory side much easier to make also concessions if, if the, the solution basically is in, in both parties' interest. And there's a lot of funds that are specialized in coming then to the support of the ship owner that um, as it's a distressed situation, it usually leads to a fair high amount of leverage. 
um, but, but to take advantage of that situation and uh, team up with people then helping to basically buy back or refinance their own loans. Um, and, and that, I must say, is now a very, very, I would say, developed industry where, where the players, the participants are quite clear, the rules are clear, and I would even call it, it's, it's become a standard liquid market um, where private equity funds those risks that um, traditional shipping banks are no longer there uh, to get involved with. In particular, because of regulation, let's not forget, banks are so tightly regulated, then whatever something happens on a loan, it, is, it deems to be a non-performing loan. It's problematic for a bank, it's very, very costly, whereas these funds that are, operate out of uh, unregulated situations have much more freedom to act, can take a much more entrepreneurial view, and of course they want to get uh, paid an appropriate return. Uh, so we see a lot of funds being very active on the credit side of the business these days. The good old days, well, I would say 10, 15 years ago, when, when you could simply go out and find a private equity partner, you have 10%, he gives 90%, you buy a ship. That still happens. Um, I would say that happens in particular in a situation where markets take a nosedive and, 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 and some funds believe now there's money to be made by playing the cycle. Um, but the biggest volume is definitely on the credit side at the moment. Okay. Can I add on this? Because Please. I think we bo you both touch on the credit uh, part of, of the investment that is our strategy. And uh, to go back to your question, Greg, I think uh, is, is shipping investable uh, as Pillarstone we think it is because uh, we usually buy loans, distressed loans from uh, banks uh, and uh, we started uh, with Premuda that was a 2017 investment uh, and obviously the Italian market was very fragmented, uh, it's very not similar to the Greek market at all, there's a lot of small owners, uh, 10, 20 ships uh, and uh, <clears throat> we look uh, at this opportunity to, to consolidate the market uh, and instead of buying the loans uh, uh, cash from the banks at a big discount, uh, we decided to do a partnership uh, with the banks uh, and to <clears throat> create a sort of uh, mechanism that was creating an incentive for them and for us to create values. Uh, and so far we have made other 10 investments uh, and bought uh, uh, Unicredit and Intesa San Paolo bad loans. Uh, uh, and we are in the process of consolidating the market. Uh, and we see value in that because uh, we can bring, again, an Italian company, a shipping Italian company to the capital markets. And uh, we, had, uh, uh, we were very pleased as well to have uh, some uh, uh, management team uh, addition this year, like Marco Fiori, that is coming from the Amico listed company. So <clears throat> from our point of view, compared to the traditional investment in shipping that KKR made as well with Borealis and other business. This type of investment for us may make a lot of sense. And we are currently looking also at other market in Europe to continue this. So, so, Roberto, can I just ask just a little clarification? So KKR, which I would call a traditional New York private equity fund for, you know, I think that's a fair description. They've invested in your platform for the purposes of investing in debt. Is that right? Correct. And you've focused primarily on the Italian market, but now you're looking beyond. We are generalist, uh, a part of FIG. We, don't, we, we do every sector, so we are active in uh, amusement parks, uh, plastic uh, paper, paper producer, plastic producer. But uh, <clears throat> the shipping, obviously, for a distressed investor is a very sizable market. There is an asset, there is downside prote protection. We invest our money uh, at super senior level with a minimum return, so we are guaranteed on, uh, on scrap values of the vessel. So 
uh, we, 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 we like it. We like it. Yeah, I, I think it's, we've certainly seen in our day-to-day -day work for clients a progression from what I would call traditional equity investments. Uh, Axel touched on it, the 90-10 joint venture between a fund and an operator. Um, and there's certainly been a progression where some of those guys who are doing deals like that have moved towards looking at buying loans or maybe just making a first lien loan, very much like a bank would have in the past. Um, you know, I was going to ask if this, the panel if they think that the prior model of just pure equity investment is, is, is on hiatus or, or dead. Axel said it's still going on, but I'm curious what, what people's views are. Is, can, can, could a Greek company partner with an equity capital provider you know, in the private market? at this point in time. Can I um, please pitch in on this one? I think, uh, first of all, let me address a couple of things that were uh, talked about here a minute ago. I would like to quote Ben Nolan from this morning, He's, where he said that institutional money, whether from funds or, or uh, others, uh, uh, from New York uh, should be considered a date, not a marriage. And I think we are seeing that clearly. Uh, it was a date, a trial period, has lasted for maybe 15 years. I think they found themselves, uh, the PE money we see inside uh, equity um, uh, uh, positions today, whether it is in public companies or direct investments, are to largely money that got stuck because they were too early into the equity investments. Uh, they are there uh, still in order to work out the investments they have made and try to um, uh, use time in order to recapture uh, whatever has been lost or at least uh, recapture some of it because they don't really want to take the losses yet because a lot of it has been invested from various funds they have, have raised where this has been part of the investment uh, mandate they have. Um, what we've seen in the last four, five, six years is and we took the initiative uh, way back to start a new Norwegian mortgage bank called uh, Maritime and Merchant. Uh, that's actually our initiative from the beginning, and we were uh, involved in incubating that. After that, we've seen, uh, and we presented that to a lot of private equity companies at the time. What, we've, what we're seeing is that they have transferred uh, on an, from an opportunistic uh, uh, point, uh, they've transferred their interest in shipping from being equity investors to being lenders and they see that there is ample scope for securing high interest rates, um, anything from 7 to 12%, uh, depending on leverage, uh, and they're using their, their um, funds to generate that sort of thing. And I'm sure that behind the scenes they're leveraging that, those uh, interest uh, margins to achieve even a double-digit return on their money because they are able to fund themselves much cheaper than, uh, than uh, the, what they are charging their customers, of course. So, all in all, I think they find it more profitable to lend at this point in time than to be on the equity side. Uh, and then you have the hybrids, the preferred equity structures, which are very similar, actually, to a mezzanine fi finance today because they come with coupons, they are considered equity, but in reality, they are basically treated as, uh, as mezzanine uh, loans or junior loans. And from there on, it's easy to say, okay, let's take the preferred, but then we might as well do a senior lending uh, on whatever is below the preferred equity. So uh, I think uh, on the equity side, I personally think that we are going to see 
um, a slow exodus of the positions of the private equity firms over the next five years because uh, many of their funds are divesting, they, their terms are coming up, and um, if you take any one of the big uh, private equity firms, they cannot necessarily transfer a bad investment from one fund into a new fund for integrity reasons. So I think we're gonna see possible uh, exoduses, and that, because we're gonna discuss this later, that leaves opportunities for new types of uh, mergers and consolidation in the industry because those investments that they're stuck with, they want to exit, may not necessarily uh, be, be possible to divest without taking big haircuts and it might press the prices in the market. So they will find a new way of doing that and we'll, we'll help them with it. Yeah, you're, you're <laughs> anticipating exactly where I want to go with this panel, but be, before we head down that road, yeah, yeah. You know, Krista, would you, I mean, you also touched on a couple of different things. You, you talked about the, the likelihood that existing investments need to be uh, liquidated in some way uh, or you know, certain investors need to get out of their positions. But I think there's also a question about whether just equity capital is available in shipping at all at, at the moment. And Krista, I was wondering if you might have perspective on this. Is, is there, could you have a private equity fund that needs to get out of certain positions that might still be willing to make new investments at the same time? Um, I, I agree with the other panelists that have commented that the core private equity has really shifted more to, to the lending side. I think that there are, um, there are pockets of new equity that we see, but it's not in the traditional asset plays or commodity sectors of shipping. Um, you know, a lot of capital has been raised in infrastructure funds, and you know that kind of equity capital is you know more suit when it comes to the maritime sectors. It's more suited for asset classes with long-term contracts. So think about you know floating liquefaction, FSRUs, some of the related infrastructure sectors that touch shipping, such as ports. Um, I think you also see you know private equity investing in some of the business services businesses around shipping. So ship management businesses, as an example which is a very fragmented sector, and you've seen some private equity capital attempt to add value. I think, you know, um, one of the early comments that, that you made, Paula, was just, you know, private equity needs to think about how to add value. Um, you know, some of the, the big plays that have been made where you've got private equity stuck in public companies today and, and waiting to get out were made as asset plays. But where private equity can add value is in some of the, the businesses around the services. Um, I do think that, you know, we, I, I agree that uh, it is more likely that the existing capital in some of these businesses will look for consolidation as a way out uh, before they look to put new capital in. Uh, Axel, would you have anything to add from sort of the Norwegian perspective? Well, I find what I admire about the Norwegians is that they are really risk takers. So uh, I think it was said on the earlier panel, um, uh, whenever basically uh, you know prices are low, uh, Norway is Norway is always a good place to find uh, uh, people to talk to. Um, I would like to extend a little bit the meaning of private equity. Let's not forget a lot of the big known private equity funds today were founded basically out of family offices that uh, started to grow bigger, started to offer their services to third party, and then became basically private equity managers. Um, we see. Um, uh, basically an interest 
um, in European um, family offices in, in shipping. There's, there's a very simple reason for that. They're overexposed in real estate. There's no yield left. Uh, they, shares, um, they can buy on the stock market, are very expensive. Um, and they are looking to diversify their portfolios. I wouldn't say that you know, this is a source of capital. You, you easily go and make it, let's raise 100 million or 200 million. That's not, not the amount we're talking about. But um, some uh, families have an interest you know, to, to take a look at teaming up with people and, and, and buying a ship or two and giving it a try. Uh, in, Norway, in Norway, that has always been a culture. And I think um, the, the desperate uh, need to find yield is, uh, is, is, is spreading across the globe. And it, it makes people at least interested uh, to look at shipping. And you know, sometimes you come across uh, peculiar structures where some people even say, you know, we've heard bad things about uh, uh, shipping and, and, and people losing vessels. Yes, we would like to buy a ship, but can we please buy it 100% equity financed? And I find that is from a family office that can be a, quite a smart idea, because if your target return after tax is 7 8% after tax, I would say that is a realistic return if you own a ship over 10 years. So if you're not driven, let's say, oh, I, you know, like many PE funds, I buy today, exit in three years, you know, you might get the cycle right, you might get the cycle wrong. Um, but if you leverage and the cycle is wrong, you lose a lot of money, and I think that is the experience that other funds have made. So I find this idea tempting that, you know, people look at this asset class from a different perspective with a different funding structure, but also with a different return expectation. And it would be interesting to see whether ship owners um, are willing basically to team up with people that say, let's do 100% equity financing and let's be happy with a smaller return larger than, rather than trying to earn 15, 20% and losing it all. So what, what I think I'm hearing is, maybe a little bit by inference and in, in what I've seen, that there's a lot of money out there to be invested and there's a lot of interest in shipping, but there's almost some flux as to how it should, how it should work. So we see a progression of institutional investors having looked at you know, the kind of simple equity investment, moving towards something a little more complicated as they begin to understand the industry. Uh, you know, what, what, just what is the value of a first lien loan? Uh, but, but at the end of the day, there's money out there and there's a lot of capital needs for shipping. You know, Roberto, uh, please. I, 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 I'm sorry for interrupting. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, please, sorry. Please, please. No, I don't think that's right, actually. No? No. I don't think there's a lot of money to be invested in shipping on, on, a, on a general uh, scale, sector by sector. If you look at industrial sectors, there's very limited amounts of money available to the shipping sector. But what we're seeing is most of that money is coming into the debt side. You have the Chinese com coming in on the debt side. You have the private equity firms coming in. You have other private initiatives setting up uh, um, lending structures because they see that the margins are high in the on the lending side in shipping. Um, and so it, there's funds on the on the debt side, but it's hard to find equity. Even I mean, I happen to be in the Norwegian market. We, that's where we are. And, and uh, placing uh, shipping investments in the Norwegian equity market is very hard these days. And they're small deals. If you can, you know, buy a container ship and invest two million dollars, yes, you can place it. But you can't go out and raise equity in Oslo. I heard the, the former panel that we're talking about, if you want to place $100 million, I would go to Oslo. If you want to do an IPO over $600 million, I would go to New York. That is, in my uh, view, a misunderstanding, because the, the $100 million that you, that you raise in Oslo would actually only be a Norwegian listing. The money is raised in London and in New York primarily. It's not raised, there might be a one or two or a handful 
of people, I would say out of a $100 million uh, IPO, maximum 20% would be found in Norway unless there is a John Fredriksen behind sponsoring it. Otherwise, uh, and then there is, you know, there are the odd entrepreneurs who's made a lot of money in other industries that pick up one VLCCs or three, four VLCCs. But again, they go to the minute they engage an investment bank to help them raise the additional capital. It's all about London and New York again. So it's not a lot of equity in the market at the moment. I, I think um, the German equity is out of the market. The Norwegian is very limited. The, private, uh, the U.S. equities are... It's hard to come by. Krista can say much more about that. Uh, and it's a, about engineering deals in a different way, I think, that, that uh, is important going forward. If I can add on this, I think it's, uh, no, it's interesting because I, I agree on the equity side. I think from an Italian perspective as well, also the banking system is now, uh, there is no much liquidity and uh, there is a big need of liquidity and uh, of uh, of a, of a new capital for the ship because all the ship owners that are coming to us, they say, can you help us in renewing the fleet, in trying solution for us? Because what we feel is like we need to pay all the debt and we, if we are very good, we pay all the debt. At the end, we have a fleet that is 20 years old or 25 years old, which we need to scrap. So <clears throat> we found ourselves like a solution in the Italian system. Uh, and uh, I think uh, uh, there is, a, and, and, I, and I am also experiencing a lot of uh, funds like us that are thinking, or also ship owners that are thinking to directly set up some liquidity fund to, to help in this, because, you know, there is a big need for that. So it's a market that is opening up for different type of investors, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, Paolo, maybe you can tell me if I'm wrong. I, I think... Tufton's had some success raising capital for investing in shipping. And I have the general sense that, and this isn't my practice, but the fund formation world, there's a lot of institutional money that is looking for investments and people have been able to raise, for example, infrastructure funds. It may not necessarily be the case that some of this money is already sort of earmarked or, or are allocated for, for shipping. Um, but you know, in, in general, would you say that, that there are investors out there that would invest in shipping if they could figure out how to do it? Well, the, uh, the, the empirical evidence is clearly that there is, there is money there. Um, as you mentioned, Greg, we've, we've raised about $250 million through a listed fund uh, in London over the past two years. It's not a huge amount, um, but um, we're, we've been a pretty significant player in the small to medium-sized um, S&P markets and especially buying ships out of the German market with not a particularly large amount of capital. In the previous few years, we raised a bit over a billion dollars from a few pension funds who wanted to invest in the, stra in the strategy that I described, then also Axel uh, described in terms of how a family office may look at shipping, which is it's unlikely to produce much lower than an 8% return um, if you're investing over the long term, if you're investing at a particularly good time. Um, on lever, you may make low teens, and that's a pretty good return when a lot of asset classes um, look look expensive. And I think even more importantly, I don't want it to be easy for people to raise money for shipping because then people are going to be doing silly things like ordering new builds, which is not in anyone's interest. We, we need to... 
touch on, we're already running out of time, and we do need to touch on consolidation a little bit, but I, I can certainly say, sitting in New York, at least in sort of the middle and latter part of 2019, we, we in our day-to-day -day legal practice were getting inquiries from people who had not invested in shipping previously who wanted to talk about how to do it, and I think that, just from a high level, is kind of indicative of some interest. Yeah, but I think we also need to carefully look at the capital structures and, and ask us, what's equity? I mean, you know, if, if, you know, 15 years ago we said 60% loan to value, that's the senior loan, 40% is equity, you know, we team up with somebody, 2020, joint venture, fine, you know, oh, there's a lot of equity in the market. That was a structure that was, you know, people came across very often in the good old days. Uh, today, what I find, it, it, maybe it isn't called equity, but it takes equity risk, is that, for example, go to Japan, a very interesting phenomenon. You know, there's people that are willing to finance ships that are older than 10 years and finance up to 90%. Um, and, and, and it, yes, it's a leasing structure because it's driven by, uh, by, by tax advantages. Rings a bell to the German market in the good old 90s, yeah, but they finance up to 90%. Yeah, and, well, you know, if the traditional split was 40% equity, 60 debt, I would say there's 30 of equity risk. And I find it extremely cheap. Yeah? So as a ship owner, all you need to come up with 10%. Yes, you need to basically get familiar with the idea that formally somebody else owns your ship because it's a leasing structure. But if you're willing to perform under the lease, if you need somebody else's capital, you know, to make an equity return on what you consider to be a good investment, I found this outstanding. And I wouldn't say that, you know, it's an endless amount of volume that is there at the moment in the market, but it's there. Um, and I find this quite an interesting development. So I would basically leave also today the conference with a bit, there's a bit of light on the horizon. There is, there is capital to be found. It is much more difficult than it used to be. But it's worthwhile, you know, to search on the planet where, where it, and it's always there. It's, it's, it's hard work to find it. Thank you for that. You know, Krista, on your, on your last panel, I think there was some, some discussion of consolidation and whether companies need to be bigger to access the capital markets. Let's ask it from the sort of private equity perspective. Do companies need to be bigger to attract investment? I mean, we've, we've answered that to a degree. If investors are shifting towards debt, maybe the answer is no. But, but what's your take? Um, we believe that there will continue to be consolidation across all the sectors. Um, if you go segment by segment, you know, we're spending time kind of in many segments, you know, on, on this. Uh, in shipping, you, you tend to see uh, a lot of bilateral discussions happen, and there's lots of things that can get in the way of transactions happening with respect to um, just you know, whether it's family control of company, whether it's different preferences of private equity, but we do believe that in terms of raising capital, having a stronger balance sheet, uh, having proper liquidity in the public markets, that all of those things support consolidation. You know, traditionally, when you think about M&A, you think about what are the synergies to combining. In many, in some of the commodity sectors of shipping, the, the revenue synergies maybe aren't as clear just because it is so fragmented. However, I, I do think in many cases there are true cost synergies. Uh, and so, so that has been and, and will continue to be a driver in our view. Anybody else want to take a shot at that? Um, I know uh, you have listed some questions to us, and it may come back to us later here, but I think the consolidation uh, uh, issues are m related to three main factors. One thing is social factors, 
it's very difficult for two or three different parties to agree who's going to run the company in the future, who's going to sit on the board, who's going to do this and that. So a lot of that, that, that gets into the stew here, which is very difficult to overcome. And it depends on how much the relevant people driving the consolidation are on the, uh, how much they sit on the ownership side. Um, uh, so that's one problem. Uh, the other problem is if you, if you merge a public company with a private company and a public company is priced at well below NAV, uh, the private company is not going to accept that his fleet is going to be priced at 60 or 80 percent of NAV as part of a consolidation process. And he's definitely not going to accept a price of the shares that he will get in return for the consolidation. He's not going to accept a price which is 20 to 30 or 40 percent higher than what has been the fair market value of that share over the last three months. So, so that is a showstopper as well. And if it's public to public, again, um, we, uh, we see a lot of merit in that. Again, social factors are important. We have actually tried to match two companies that have very, had very different uh, PE to NAV, where uh, the, the company with the highest uh, uh, NAV to, uh, or price to NAV, um, would, would um, uh, be the, the surviving company, and thereby the, with the idea that that would bring up the value of the lower NAV company, and therefore be, it would be accretive. It would be accretive to the, take, the company that takes over because they would be able to buy a company at, uh, at the price which is lower than their own, and it would be accretive to the shareholders in the company that is being taken over uh, because they would get an uplift in the share price. There, th those opportunities have been there, will probably be there, um, uh, but again, you've got to overcome social factors, you've got to uh, overcome um, uh, dilution issues, not value dilution, but actually ownership dilution, and there might be reasons that the company that should take over another company don't want to dilute their ownership there or the majority owners. So th there are a lot of problems, but Right now, the best place I see, the best opportunities I see is uh, when, when a public can take over another public company at different prices and where the highest value company is the company that takes over the other one, because that could be accretive to, both, to shareholders in both companies. That, that's actually quite interesting, and, and I'm glad you raised those points. We're, we are technically out of time. <laughs> But Krista, I just let me ask you. Maybe maybe we can try to bring it to a conclusion around around this topic. Um, you know, is, do you think it's fair to say that the existing public companies need to get bigger, and that they'll pursue transactions like the one just described? Yes. Well, that was that was short and sweet. And and will and will we see? But in this current environment, as you were saying at the in your last panel, that we're not going to see likely much capital markets activity for at least another couple of quarters. Do we need a robot? Do we need active capital markets to facilitate that kind of transaction? Is the, the current situation with coronavirus, is it going to slow things down or speed things up with respect to consolidation? Look, it's always, I think it's a good point in terms of relative value between two companies because it's always difficult if you have companies that are 
trading at you know, very different value points and how their boards and shareholders think about relative value. Um, ultimately, when a board thinks about value of a company, the question is, what is my value today? And am I going to achieve, if I believe I'm undervalued, am I going to achieve what I believe to be proper value over time in my current structure? Or am I better off, is it value accretive to my shareholders to merge with somebody else and, and see that accretion? And so that can be you know, difficult when stocks you know, were two times the level they are today a month ago. Um, so I think certainly the current environment does hamper some of those discussions. That said, in an environment where there's not abundant capital there in the equity markets, I do think that you know, consolidation remains an attractive way for companies to grow and, and see the benefits over time to their valuations. But it, it, this is a sector where you know, the social issues are important, <coughs> they matter, and um, these things take time. Thank you. Uh, I think we should probably need to wrap this up. Any, any last words? Anybody want to say something that we didn't get to? And any questions from the audience? Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Greg. Thank you to our panelists. Thank you especially to uh, Krista for doing two panels together. Thank you very much for a very interesting topic. And dear friends, we're coming to the closing. I will ask Theo Xenakoudis from uh, the Marshall Islands, the International Registries, to um, provide closing remarks. And I would like to thank him for sponsoring the cocktails, which we are about to enjoy very shortly. So Theo, thank you. And the floor is yours. Thank you, Nicolas. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to be quite short because I understand everybody wants to uh, looking forward to ending the day. So it's my honor to provide the closing remarks for what has been a very insightful and engaging day of presentations, discussions, and uh, debates. I must start by thanking all the speakers today for sharing their expertise and opinions on the key issues surrounding regulations, decarbonization, digitization, finance, and many other critical factors that will shape our businesses in the coming years. I would like also to say congratulations to Mr. George Prokopiou for the Capital Link Greek Shipping Leadership Award, which is a very well-deserved award. Now I'm sure you will all agree that there are a number of big challenges on the horizon, for many of which we don't even have the answer yet. Six months ago, nobody would be able to predict or plan for the effects of a pandemic, but the outbreak of the coronavirus is an example of how rapidly challenges present themselves in our industry. The potential ramifications of, the, of this virus outbreak on our sector are significant and widespread. The combined effects of falling freight rates, potential new legislation that will come into effect, and the supply chain slowdown are all critical businesses for many of us. However, I would like to urge all of you to remember those that are at the center of this crisis, our people. Our crews rely on us, and we owe them a duty of care to do our utmost to support and protect them during this difficult period. It is also important to stress that, of course, there are opportunities. That much was clear from the many panels and debates that we heard today. From a flag state perspective, 
we should be very well resourced in order to develop a suitable regulatory framework and mechanism in order to enforce these changes. For the many new environmental and fuel-related issues, there is much work to be done to ensure that the highest standards of safety, security, and sustainability, both environmental and economic, are maintained or even improved. And this requires rules and regulations to standardize operations and ensure a level playing field. On the other side, we'll know that the regulatory framework governing the maritime and finance industries are quite complex, extremely detailed, and many times contentious. Quite new standards are the new trends of today, like uh, Poseidon principles or ESG, and of course, international sanctions. And that is why it's quite reassuring, actually, today to see so many people from all over the world, and especially the Greek market from our industry, that uh, share exp their expertise and raising difficult questions and topics. Different ways of financing are still discussed, which is very positive today, from banking to leasing houses and still capital markets. On our side, from a registry point of view, we have to commit significant resources to help the industry to understand and adjust to the fast-changing uh, regulatory environment. We do all that we can to inform uh, to the, the new developments and the new regulations, uh, we have an expertise representation in the IMO, and we have to maintain open communications with uh, the shipping community. Our people are, of course, can be found in London in the IMO, but also throughout the major shipping centres, providing close support to the fleet. What is also clear from today's discussion is that uh, our willingness as an industry to explore and debate issues in events like Capital Link will help us also to deliver solutions that will take the maritime sector forward for many more generations to come. Now, as Mr. Prokopius said, let's enjoy our hobby, because this is a hobby. I would like to say special thanks to Olga and Nicholas for what they're doing and keep up with uh, uh, these successful events. And uh, now you're all welcome to join us for uh, some drinks and uh, enjoy the cocktails. Thank you very much.